everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, October 15th, 2018. I'm your host, Kara Santa Maria, and I am coming at you right now from the QED conference in Manchester here in the UK. I have been on a whirlwind book tour with my other podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. I'm having so much fun, and I'm really glad that I get to continue Talk Nerdy each and every week. I'm really glad that it's 100% free for you to download, and that is because of the support from listeners just like you. There's a bunch of ways to support the show. Probably the most important is just listen to it. Share it with your friends and family. That's the number one thing. That's the important thing is to get this out there. But also, you can sign up to be a patron of the show. You've just got to go to patreon.com slash talk nerdy. Let's go ahead and thank the patrons this week, which include Rob Shrek, Pedro M., Rosario Barbosa, The Zombie Drummer, David J.E. Smith, Jeffrey Perez, Charles Payet, Jafe, Gabriel Felipe Jaramillo Gonzalez, Brian Holden, and Jeffrey Sewell. Now, there's a whole bunch more patrons than that, but at different levels, you get different perks. And all of these folks um, have signed up at the level that gets them a shout out on the show, which is really cool. But I have a new way that you can support the show, and I'm really excited about it, and I would love for you guys to check it out. If you go to talknerdymerch.com, merch, right? Short for merchandise. TalkNerdyMerch.com. I have all sorts of new swag available. And I'm talking t-shirts, baseball cut tees, tank tops, hoodies, pullover sweatshirts, baby onesies, mugs, all sorts of fun stuff with a bunch of new designs. So I'd love for you to check it out. They also come in all different sizes, all different colors. Um, Yeah, it's a great way to support the show and also look cool doing it. That's what I like to say. Okay, uh, what else do we got? I don't think we have any more news. So why don't we jump into the show? I'm really excited about this one. All right, Vince Beiser. He is a an investigative journalist, a producer, and a writer. And he has a new book. And I know it sounds weird. Like, it's crazy that this whole book is about sand. It's called The World in a Grain. What's the subtitle? The Story of Sand and How It Transforms Civilization. But it's fascinating, you guys. Sand is so important across the globe. And apparently, we're kind of using it up. We may be running out soon. Stuff that I had never thought about before I checked out this book. And I hope that it's as enlightening for you as it is for me. So guys, without any further ado, here he is, Vince Beiser. Well, Vince, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to talk about your new book. I'm really excited that we live close enough that you could walk here. Doubly. <laughs> Doubly so. Yeah, that's awesome. And I don't even think it took a full 15 minutes. You thought it might, but I think it was a little quicker. You know, it just goes to show you can't believe everything that Apple Maps tells you. <laughs> That is so true. Maybe I was just so motivated because I was so psyched to do this. There is that that thing, that kind of game where you get to beat the GPS. You, I always do that when I drive. Do you do that? You're like, oh, if I can shave off two more minutes. I, you know, I kind of <laughs> let the, I'm not that competitive with my GPS, <laughs> but maybe I should be. Probably also not very safe. Um, so we connected a few months ago now, it might even be longer than that, when we sat on a panel together for, I think, like the SoCal Science Writers right. Group. Was that right? Mm-hmm. And they had both of us come up. Um, our panel was about, was it about media or was it just about science communication broadly? I can't even remember. <laughs> oh, everybody either. on it had a media kind of background. So I think it might have had to do with science and television. Um, yeah, but, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And I kept having to defer to you because I was like, actually, I've only just started in television. Carrie, you know all about it. Why don't you take this one? Well, the really weird thing is because you started on a show that I used to work on, which is extra just, I don't know. Small worldy. Small worldy. And so that's SoCal Connected. I've mentioned it for years on the podcast. It's a local show here on what was KCET, but they just made the announcement is is now, I guess, going to be PBS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've rejoined the fold. Very exciting. Yeah. Um, so are you still working with them? Yeah, actually, I've got... Um, so the new season starts on October 9th. It's, a, it's, a local, it's an investigative news magazine show, mm-hmm. as you know, and... Uh, I worked on one, this, this season they've changed the format some, so each episode, each 
show is just one episode, like one sort of half hour long kind of mini documentary. Full story. You're Full not doing story. three different little stories. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So the, the first one is the one that I worked on, which is, I think it's going to be really great. It's about, it's a really sad story, but I think it's a really important one about this guy who was a, a big football star uh, back in the eighties, like back in, like in a really harsh part of Los Angeles, back in the, you know, at the height of the crack and gang, you know, bad old days, but everybody thought of oh, this kid. He's such an amazing football player. He's going to make it up out of here. He's going to be fine. But instead, when he, about the time he graduated from high school, just as he was being recruited by all these colleges and everything, his mind fell apart. Schizophrenia set in as it often does right around that age. And long story short, he wound up homeless on Skid Row here in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, his mom was in prison because mm-hmm. she had been, been a heroin junkie who had turned to bank robbery. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's intense. Yeah. Very intense lady. Um, so she did uh, almost 20 years in federal prison, finally gets out, turns her life completely around. She's now clean, sober, like the most on it, dedicated woman you've ever met in your life. And she's basically spent the last few years trying to rescue her son, trying to get him up off the street, trying to get him out of jail because, of course, he keeps getting, you know, he's in and out of jail like so many mentally ill mm-hmm. homeless people and get him into mental health treatment, which turns out to be really, really hard. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of that it's that story. And then talking about the whole issue of how there's so many mentally ill people caught up in the criminal justice system. That's kind of the big issue. I love that. I mean, there's it's such an important, I think, storytelling mechanism that SoCal Connected does so well, which is taking a real kind of civic issue, you know, whether we're talking about the mental health care system and how broken it is and how expensive it is and how so many people fall through the cracks, but telling it through the lens of an individual person who you can really identify with and who you really feel for as you're, as you're telling that story. And of course, to be able to have that kind of access and to have somebody who's so willing to be, you know, in essence, followed around and have the, the details of their life divulged on television is a real honor, I think. Yeah, it's heavy. I mean, she really, you know, we couldn't really talk to him because he's locked up. And mm-hmm. also he's, I mean, he's so mentally ill. We did talk to him over the phone a couple of times, but he's really out of it. But his mom really just, I have just the utmost respect for this lady. She worked, she works so incredibly hard at this. And like you say, yeah, she just opened up her whole life to us. We followed around for over a year. Actually. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's a different model than SoCal was doing previously. We definitely never could spend a year on a story. I know, I know. It's Actually, a rare I'm luxury. I'm kind of jealous, yeah. And so, I mean, it's interesting because we're sitting here talking about a story about social justice and a story about mental illness and a story about, you know, Los Angeles kind of institutions. But at the same time, you know, you've written this new book and it's a science book. So, you know, as a journalist, have you always had an interest in focusing more on science? Have you always had an interest in focusing more on just the the art of investigation? Or, you know, where does your kind of interest lie? Well, I'll tell you, it's funny because I'm real. I mean, as a journalist, I've, I've, you know, I've done pretty much everything. I spent a few years overseas doing, you know, war correspondence stuff and did a lot of criminal justice stuff, prisons, cops, courts. I've done politics. I mean, I've really done it all. And I really, I would never have thought of myself as a science journalist, but uh, it's just kind of something that keeps pulling me in because it's really, in a lot of ways, science and technology is the most important story of our time, right? I mean, you know, it's just transforming how we live constantly and how we do everything. And I've always, I've really never been, I never thought of myself as interested in science. In fact, I quit. The last thing I took was grade 11 chemistry, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and that was it for me in science. And I thought, I'm good. I'm done with this science stuff. It's too hard. And I, I have zero, you know, formal training. You know, I'm not, the, you know, somebody like you who really like actually is a scientist and talks about it. I'm just a journalist who, who always loved science fiction, I think is a really big part of it. Really? Yeah. Who are your favorite authors? Oh, man. You know, all the classics. I mean, I grew up on, you know, Robert Heinlein and Ray Bradbury and, you know, all those sort of golden age uh, men and women. Ursula K. Le Guin, of course, all that kind of canon on up through, you know, William Gibson and Bruce Sterling. 
I'm not so clued into, you know, who's, who's, who's doing what these days, but I always, always, always loved that stuff. And I feel like part of why I've sort of come back, part of why I've wound up doing so much science and tech stuff is because of that, because it's just, we're living in a science fiction world now. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, it's so crazy the the things where the distance that we've traveled just in my life, you know, since I was a kid growing up in the seventies, I think about the things that I can do that my kids know how to do, you know, it's straight up science fiction. It really is. And that I kind of love that. It's super weird sometimes when I have an opportunity to talk to, let's say, a scientist or an engineer at NASA or somebody at SpaceX or when I'm, you know, having a conversation with a former astronaut and we're like talking about potentially legitimately going to Mars, like without a hint of irony, like, oh, these are the plans right now. And it just... You have to take yourself out of it for a second and be like, this was in my books. <laughs> this is like, this, this is fiction. Yeah. How is this really happening? Yeah. Oh, it's so cool. Yeah. I mean, it's such a rapid um, change, isn't it? Like, it really is exponential within the past several decades, the improvements we've seen in, in science and technology. Yeah. Yeah. And it just keeps, you know, the pace of change just keeps on accelerating you know, to where we're just uh, hardly anything surprising anymore. You know, you hear about some amazing new thing that you can do with your phone <laughs> and you're just like, oh yeah, okay. I, I expected there to be some amazing new thing I could do with my phone because it's been <laughs> six months since there was some amazing thing I could do with my phone. <gasps> but I don't want to pay a thousand dollars for it. <laughs> Why isn't it cheaper? No, you're so right. We've become so just used to it. And it's funny that we're talking about, you know, these ideas that were sort of described in the middle of the last century that are now really coming to fruition. And then on the flip side of that, I love that the book that you chose to write about, and of course, there's so much depth and there's so much breadth, but on its surface, unless somebody takes the time to stop and think about it, they're like, sand? Yeah. Sound. Really? Right. <laughs> and so I have to say, okay, the book is uh, The World in a Grain, the story of sand and how it transforms civilization. So I have to ask, before we even get into the meat of this, something had to prompt you to write this book. What was it? Um, it was really kind of, uh, just kind of luck, really. I mean, I'm a, I'm a full-time freelancer, so I'm always hustling around looking for a good story. And I like overseas stuff a lot. So I read, you know, I just read a lot of weird, obscure, kind of off the beaten path kind of stuff. And I just stumbled across this thing on a little environmental website. It's called ejolt.org. Okay. It was just this little article uh, that taught me two things. One was that sand is the most consumed natural resource in the world after air and water. Hmm. That right there just kind of made me sit up and take notice because I was just like, what? Sand? How do you consume sand? How do you yeah. consume sand? What do we use sand? What do we even use it for? Like I had just never even thought about it. Huh. And then second, that we're using so much of it. There's so much demand for it that we are stripping riverbeds and beaches bare all over the world, causing massive environmental damage to get that sand. And in some places, people are even being murdered over sand. And I thought this was the craziest thing I'd ever heard. So I had to find out more, you know, started looking into it, come to find out all that was true. And it's especially true in India for reasons that I can talk about if you want. But anyway, uh, this was all complete news to me. I'd never even thought about it, but I got uh, Wired Magazine, which I write for quite a bit mm -hmm. to send me over to India. And I did a story about what's called the sand mafia over there, wow. right? Which sounds kind of hilarious. <laughs> But it's actually a really serious thing. It's organized crime in India controls a big part of the market in sand. And they have murdered hundreds of people in the last few years to keep their control of it. So anyway, I did this story for them. I this Everything that I found out along the way blew my mind. I'll just give you the whole spiel. You know what? Why do we need so much sand? Because yeah. sand is the thing that our cities are made out of. All right. This house that we're sitting in right here is mostly made from concrete, uh, right? just like every shopping mall, every office tower, every condo block that's built anywhere in the world is mostly made out of concrete. Mm -hmm. And what's concrete? It's just sand and gravel stuck together with cement. 
It's just big, big piles of sand. Also, the roads that connect all those buildings, asphalt and concrete roads, are also nothing but sand that's been glued together. The windows in all those buildings, glass is just melted down sand. Every piece of glass, from the glass in your eyeglasses to the picture windows in your house, melted down sand. The silicon chips that power our computers and our phones and every other digital you know, goodie that we use, also made from sand. Huh. So you add it all up and you realize, wow, we use, without sand, no modern civilization, right? We could not build modern cities. Now, what's happening is all over the world, cities are growing like crazy at Mm -hmm. a pace and on a scale that has never remotely happened before. Because the population is growing like crazy. Exactly. Because there's more and more people, population is growing worldwide, and more and more of those people are pouring into cities every all over the world. People are leaving the countryside, leaving Mm -hmm. farming villages and coming into the cities, just as they did in this country a hundred years ago or in Europe a hundred years ago. Exact same process only. Now we're talking about billions of yeah, people doing China, it. China, India, places where so, I mean, I think it's hard for us here in the United States or even my listeners in Australia, probably less so in Australia, the UK, Germany, South Africa, to really visualize that kind of population density. You know, yeah. we have a hundred or a few hundred million here, 350 million, something like that. Yeah. Um, but billions? Yeah. Wow. Well, so here's a few statistics Mm -hmm. to kind of give you a sense. In 1950, worldwide, there was about 750 million people living in cities all over the world. Today, the number is about 4 billion. Jeez. So there's more people living in cities today than there were on Earth. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. Just 50, 60 years ago. Oh, my gosh. Right? Yeah. So that's a big um, strain. It's a big strain. So to build those cities, I mean, just imagine how fast those cities are growing. We are adding, we're building the equivalent of eight New York cities every single year. So imagine every building, every roadway, every sidewalk in New York City, we're building that times eight every year. Right? I have to tell you, when I, just last year, I took a trip to to Hong Kong and China. And while I was in China, I, I went to a town, quote unquote, that was in the south of China. And everybody talked about it like it was just this really small town. It had 13 million people. You know what I mean? I'm like, it's like bigger than New York City. And it was just a, a blip on the map. Right. And when we were driving around in it, I was just blown away by the fact that it was cranes as far as the eye could see with just these generic looking towers, these residential kind of towers of apartments, and they would be doubled and tripled and quadrupled. And sometimes you'd be staring miles down the road and it would, I mean, it felt like those science fiction books that we were talking about. Absolutely. It's a, it's on a scale that's very difficult to understand here. Yeah. It's totally unfathomable. I mean, it really, really is. I have, I have loads of stats and comparisons and, you know, bits and pieces in the book, but basically it's, it's so huge. You can't, cannot get your head around it. I mean, China is the biggest mm-hmm. by far. That's where the most construction is and the most urbanization. But it's only a piece of it. I mean, the same thing is happening in India, in Indonesia, in Vietnam, in Nigeria, practically everywhere in the developing world. Mm -hmm. The same thing is happening. Urbanization, like I said, on a scale and at a speed that just dwarfs anything that's ever happened before. And of course, we're talking about sand as a basic building block. I mean, literally a basic building block of Big stuff. I mean, that's really, it's the sheer quantity of it to build a skyscraper, you know, between the glass and the concrete, both within the skyscraper, the blocks that make up the walls, but also the roads that are paved to it. But I I guess we have to take a step back, right? Because I think we all know, sort of emotionally and heuristically what sand is like it's that stuff on the beach but what like what is sand what is it made out of right so the actual word sand it can just means little grains small pieces of any hard material oh so salt could be sand yeah salt could be sand yeah Yeah. absolutely 
Um, since this is a science show, I'll mm-hmm. tell you that it is that specifically it has to be something with a diameter between two millimeters and point zero six two five millimeters. <laughs> because any smaller, it probably becomes what like dust. It's or called it's silt. Silt. Yeah, and yeah, any yeah. bigger than that, it's called gravel. Okay. So it's really, it, I mean, all those things are really just measurements of size. So sand, you know, the sand you think of, the sand you see on the beach or you know on the, your lakeshore or whatever, can be anything. You know, whatever there is in the local geology, it can be quartz, it can be feldspar. It can be, you know, all, limestone, all kinds and of seashells stuff. seashells too, right? It can be ground up seashells. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why like in the Caribbean, you get those beaches that are like all pink sand. Those are crushed up shells and aquatic organisms. Those mm-hmm. are called biogenic sands. Things cool. that, there's a little science word. Yeah. Cause we've seen enough. sometimes those pictures of, um, the like sand under a microscope and mm-hmm. usually the ones that grab everybody's attention i think are the ones that are more marine sand yeah, right because definitely. they have they almost have the same structure as marine organisms but they're so tiny yeah, yeah exactly. almost like whole shells yeah, in there. they look super cool and they have yeah. really cool little patterns in them <laughs> and they're crazy colors but um yeah so it can be those things it can be uh it can be volcanic rock that mm. uh that, um, you know, lava that, uh, that hardens and then shatters in the water. That's why, where you get those black sand beaches in Hawaii. But most sand and the sand that we're talking about, really, the sand that we use for construction is quartz. Okay. Something like 70% of all the sand grains in the world, they estimate, nobody knows for sure, but the vast majority of them are quartz. And where do they come from? They're basically little tiny pieces of mountains. That's what they are. So what happens is you've got mountains and other, you know, geologic rock formations that get worn down over thousands of millions of years, eroded by wind and rain. You know, forces of nature are constantly wearing on those things, chipping off little bits of them, right? Little grains of them. Rains wash those grains down the sides of mountains into rivers. Mm. They collect in rivers and then the rivers carry that stuff, those sand grains far and wide. They take them down the mountainside and across the land dropping it all the way along, along the riverbeds and along the floodplains and places where rivers change their course and on out to where the river meets the sea, which is the beach. So yeah. That's why you often have so much sand on beaches and in river deltas. So that's where, and that's the stuff we're really talking about. That's It's that quartz sand or that sand that is predominantly made up of quartz particles. That's the stuff that we're using on an unbelievable scale. A few more numbers for you. We use, how much of that stuff do we use every year? We use 50 billion tons of sand. I don't sand. even know how much that is. I'll tell you. <laughs> it's I'll tell know, you. It's okay. enough to cover the entire state of California an inch deep. An inch deep? An inch deep. Oh, wow. Every single year. So this is where the problem comes in, right? Because sand, I mean, obviously it's really abundant, right? You find it all over the place. It's actually the most abundant thing on the Earth's crust is quartz sand. But but it's still a natural resource. It's a natural resource. And when you're talking about using 50 billion tons of it every single year, you can see why we are actually, believe it or not, starting to run out. Wow. Yeah, that's an unsustainable... I mean, this is such an interesting conversation that takes us back to important themes about industrialization, right? This idea that we as human beings live on this planet that provides so much for us, but there is not a ubiquitous amount and this stuff doesn't replace itself quickly. It replaces itself on geologic scales. So, I mean, I guess the most obvious question that comes up first is like, why can't we just make this stuff ourselves? Like, why can't we synthesize it in a lab? Um, so we can. We don't okay. have to go to the trouble to synthesize it in a lab. The easiest thing is just crush up rock, right? Just but that's also a natural resource. A, it's also <laughs> yeah. a natural resource. But the main problem is it's just, it's a lot more expensive. Mm. I mean, if you think about how much energy it takes to smash down rock into sand grains, it costs a lot more than it does to just scoop up fresh, naturally made sand from a riverbed. This is one of the things about sand. I mean, sand and concrete. So concrete is is the main, main thing to be concerned about. That's We use way more sand for concrete than anything else. Okay. So more than the computer chips, more than the glass in all of the windows and, and um, anything else that we make out of glass. Concrete's like a lot. Concrete is m- more than all of those put together. Gotcha. Okay. So all those other things are really have really fascinating stories behind them. Part of the book is sort of goes into each one of those things like glass, silicon chips, uh, you know, uh, reclaimed land. How do we do that? You know, sort of goes into the science and the history of all that mm-hmm. stuff. And they're all really interesting and really important. But the real crisis around sand comes from concrete, comes from the incredible amounts of concrete that we're using. 
because to get at it, I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic building material. Concrete is right. It's really easy to make. It's really easy to use and it's cheap and it's cheap because it's made out of sand and you can get sand all over the place really easily. Problem is more and more and more as we're, you know, digging up more and more of this sand, we're doing enormous damage to the natural world to get at it. We're literally, you know, stripping entire riverbeds bare, tearing entire beaches away, ripping up fields, forests to get at the sand that's underneath it. It's such an irony. It's like in an effort to build a fortress, we're literally building a house on sand. Like the ground is slipping underneath us because we're getting rid of the foundation that we need beneath our feet. I mean, the geological implications of this much be, must be huge. And we never think about that, right? That this exactly. is this is in, in many ways our firmament and we're taking it away. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And it's like I say, it's the literal foundation of modern <laughs> yeah. civilization. I mean, we we can't stop using it. In some ways it's it's like fossil fuels, but in in, in one very important way, it's really not. There's there's really no alternative. Yeah. Right. We can't, there's no version of solar and wind power that we can replace concrete with. But the challenge is we've got to come up with ways to be smarter about it. We've got to come up with ways to build our cities and, and live our lives in ways that are sustainable, that we can actually, you know, where we're not going to destroy the planet and, and also wipe out people's livelihoods along the way while we're, while we're doing it. The interesting thing is that that theme is echoed, right? When we talk about fossil fuels or when we talk about any sort of natural resource that we are just now realizing is going to run out if we don't start to think sustainably about this. The same efforts, I would assume, that could be made to be more mindful within city planning will downstream affect all of these things, whether it be fuel consumption or whatever, because it's about having like more harmonious living conditions. It's about doing more with less and all of those things feed into one another. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this is what I always say. So this is usually where I sort of wrap up the interview. People always ask me, well, what can we do yeah. about sand? And I say exactly that. It's the real question is not what can we do about sand, but what sand is sand, like I said, is the most abundant thing on the planet. And if we're running out of that, which we are, that really tells us, that we've really kind of hit a crisis point with everything because it's not just sand, like, you know, it's forest, it's fresh water, it's fish in the ocean, all these things that we used to think were infinite mm -hmm. and aren't. It's really sand is just one more symptom of that, that same problem that we're just consuming too much stuff. But I think you're right. I mean, the good news is I really, I do believe that once you sort of get that and you start looking at ways to kind of live smaller, you know, to kind of figure out ways to build cities and live modern lives with using less, you find that saving resources in one area can often give you lead to savings in another area, right? Like cars is, mm -hmm. is my favorite example, right? If we can reduce car ownership by 10%, right? First of all, great. We save on all kinds of fossil fuels and emissions and, you know, all the rest of the trouble that comes with cars. But we could also save a hell of a lot of sand. Mm -hmm. Why? Because if you don't have a car, you don't need a driveway and a garage in your house anymore, right? And that right there, that's several hundred tons of sand for every single driveway in every suburban house. You don't need to build as many roads. The roads that you do build don't have to be quite as, they don't have to be as thick with concrete because they're only supporting bicycles and not six lanes of cars. They're yeah. supporting maybe four lanes of cars. You don't need as many parking lots, right? You don't need, so think of all the pay parking spot lot, uh, lots, you know, in every city, parking lots in hotels and shopping malls, you can shrink all of those things by 10 or 20%. And think of all the pavement that you save that. So in other words, saving on cutting down car use also saves you a lot of sand, a lot of sand. And it's interesting, too, because the flip side of saving on having to pave those things means more undisturbed habitat, because that's the other thing we often don't really talk about is that the sheer amount of concrete on the surface of our planet is wreaking such havoc, not just on the organisms that used to live in the habitat that was there, which I mean, concrete is almost like the antithesis of habitat, right? But also like we saw the effects recently with the hurricane in Houston, mm -hmm. yeah. where and I mean, 
Obviously, the hurricane in Puerto Rico recently was really devastating the hurricanes that have just taken place and um, tsunamis in Indonesia. But Houston had this very unique situation in that it was so terraformed that the water just had nowhere to go. It couldn't drain into the dirt. It couldn't drain. And so they were just underwater and there was literally cholera growing in the water because there was not enough drainage opportunity. Because it's all paved. It's Uh, just hundreds of square miles of pavement and that water just flowed around on top of the concrete. Yeah. It's like one of the greatest perks of concrete is that it's like not that permeable. And then of course it bites you in the ass during a natural disaster. Well, I think that, That is a good point to take a quick break because I want to thank the sponsor of this week's episode. And then we will be right back with Vince Beiser talking about the world in a grain. All right, guys, I want to take a quick moment to thank the sponsor of this week's episode, Calm. Now, you've heard me say it before, and I'm going to say it again. I love Calm. It has made a massive difference in my life. And you know I'm telling the truth because I used it long before I started partnering with them for the show. I'm so excited to be sponsored by Calm because it's just, it's important. It's the number one app for sleep, meditation, and relaxation. It was even named Apple's 2017 app of the year. Now, I am in the UK right now, and I am massively jet lagged. And I can tell you that going to sleep at night has been made a thousand percent easier because of Calm. Not only does it have these incredible guided meditation routines, you know, it's really helpful for people who are new to meditation, but there's also plenty of uh, lesser guidance uh, routines for people who have been doing it for a while and they don't want as much speaking in their meditation. But there's all these great uh, meditations, but there's also wonderful music in the app. There's a whole section of music for focus, which I always listen to when I'm reading and prepping for school. There's a whole section of music for relaxation. But my favorite is the section that has music for sleep. I can't tell you how helpful it has been in my travels And there's just so much more to explore. There are sleep stories for those of you who want kind of a grown-up bedtime story, but there are sleep stories for kids as well. And there's so much more. So here's the cool thing. If you go to calm.com slash nerdy, you will get 25% off of a Calm premium subscription just for listening to the show. It's a limited time. So you've got to go to calm.com slash nerdy for 25% off a premium subscription. It includes unlimited to access to all of Calm's amazing content. One more time, that's calm.com slash nerdy. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. All right, guys, we are back with Vince Beiser. We're talking about the world in a grain, the story of sand and how it transformed civilization. And of course, we were just uh, discussing what we wanted to talk about coming up. And Vince just said, there's a lot of interesting stuff in this book. (laughs) It's been a while since he wrote it. (laughs) That must be let's let's switch gears for a second, because there's so much stuff I want to get into about sand. But I would love to talk to you a little bit about your process of writing, too, because that always, you know, let's peel back and talk about the man behind the book. How long did it take you from the time you decided, I'll write a book about this until, you know, you had the finished copy in your hand? I think it was right around three years. That's a big chunk. Yeah. That's a lot of your life. Sure. I mean, I was doing other stuff, you know, here and there, but I mean, it was really like, I I got really lucky as, as, as book authors go, because I did this, I did a pretty big feature for Wired. So that, that was kind of the base that I got. Mm -hmm. So a bunch of the research, I already had the idea. I had some of the research already in hand and I could see it because by the time I'd finished researching that article, I was like, wow, who knew there's all that I can see, you know, what, what all the chapters are going to be. So, um, I managed to sell the book pretty quick yeah. and then I, you know, I was off and running. So it was like the really, I was probably like full time on the book, like heavy duty research, heavy duty writing for a year and change. That's still, I mean, that's an awful lot because that's time that you can't be doing as much other stuff, you know, that's dedicating most of your time. But I could see that that would be so helpful because I I always feel like when I'm sitting down to write a paper for school or, you know, we just recently wrote this book for the Skeptics Guide that the blank page is such an enemy. It's just a mortal enemy. And so to be able to start with something, even if you're ultimately going to rewrite the whole thing and expand it, you know, a hundred times over to have something on the page 
is so helpful, isn't yeah, it? Totally. It's just an enormous, it's a great psychological backstop. It's yeah. like, well, I've already done. Of course, it turned out like, you know, that Wired article is maybe like 2% of the finished product. But <laughs> but I got, you know, I had the, the comfort of feeling like, oh, I've already done a big chunk of it, yeah. you know, it can't be that hard. Little did he know. Exactly. And so, of course, a big chunk, as we talked about earlier, of the sand that's being used for industrial purposes across the globe is concrete. It's building materials, it's roads, it's all the things that we use concrete for. But you also mentioned a few other uh, ways that sand can be utilized. And they're still large. I mean, it's a big percentage of the economy of certain parts of the world. So one of them that really interests me is glass, you know, because it feels a little like alchemy, the fact that you can take something that you cannot see through something that's totally opaque, such as sand, and then make a perfectly clear, perfectly safe, tempered, protective shield out of it that literally fills up half your wall and you can see the beautiful view outside. Like, I don't know if we ever really stop or maybe we don't stop as often as we should to appreciate the like amazing science. I I know I didn't, man. I mean, glass, there's, I could easily do a whole nother book on Mm -hmm. glass and the way that glass has transformed all of our lives and we don't even notice it. I mean, it is just the most mind blowing stuff. I mean, it's really, like you say, it's really magical. You know, it's, it's a transmutation of, of, of elements. It's Mm -hmm. like alchemy and just the difference that it has made to so much of how we live. Right. I mean, windows that we take for granted windows are, were a luxury up until about 150 years ago, they were expensive. They were small, you know, these giant windows that we have, that's a very recent thing. It's only because, you know, the technology has gotten better and better and we've gotten better and better at making glass cheaper and making it strong enough to make these big, uh, uh, you know, big sheets, big plate glass sheets. But it's also when you really stop and look around at your world you know, there's the glass windows in your house. There's the glass in your car. There's the glass in your eyeglasses. There's mm-hmm. the glass on your computer screens, your phone screens, your iPad screens. And one thing that really got me was lenses, mm. right? If you think about it, uh, basically what happened was, I mean, we've, people have been making glass for thousands of years. Nobody even knows when it, where it originated or who came up with it first. It goes at least back to the time of the ancient Egyptians, but it was only in the in about the 1400s that uh, a guy in Italy and uh, one of the famous glassmakers of Italy came up with actually completely transparent glass. Uh. He found this very, very pure silica sand and came up with just the right combination of other elements. But glass is basically you melt down very high purity silica sand and mix it with a couple of other things that are called flux. And you get glass, but glass can be, there's a, you know, big range in, in, in the quality of that yeah, glass. Yeah, the clarity. In the clarity, in the, the smoothness, all the stuff. Anyway, this guy named Angelo Barovier comes up with the very first truly transparent glass. And once that glass hit the market, that's when people learned how to grind it into lenses for telescopes and for microscopes. Mm-hmm. And if you stop and think about it, if we, if that hadn't happened, we wouldn't have had the scientific revolution, right? Where would science be without those, that, you know, completely overlooked innocuous little bit of gear, the lens. And it is, I mean, they're really, it's like superpowers, right? You have a lens and a telescope and all of a sudden you can see far further than any human being could ever see before. You put a lens in a microscope and you can see things far smaller than you could see with the naked eye. And that just opened up the entire universe to us in the most literal way. Yeah. Yeah. That the ability to see scales beyond anything we ever evolved to be able to see. I mean, those tools just extended our capability so much. And now, of course, there are thousands of professions dedicated to this. You know, without it, we wouldn't have, like you said, almost all of modern science. And like, for example, one of the guests on the show, you guys may remember my friend Holly Bender. She was on one of the earlier episodes, and she's an optical engineer at at NASA's JPL. And this Mm. is what she does all day, every day, is she makes lenses to 
specification to do like mass spec, like to look at spectra in space. That's why we call her the mistress of space rainbows, because she's able to understand what's happening in space because they can make glass now to these amazing specifications. And it's it can do so much more than just bend light a little bit. I mean, it's just incredible. It really is. It really is. And one thing, one really fascinating little historical footnote is the idea that that this is one of the things that gave that gave Europe a huge advantage because mm. ancient China or medieval China and Japan, they knew about glass too. They had, you know, deck glass that they used sort of as decoration and little bits of windows, just like Europe had. But they just basically weren't interested in it. There was no real industry. They didn't pursue it. And glass, so anyway, China, the lenses were introduced to Japan and China by European missionaries. Mm. So they had, you know, they were a good couple of hundred years behind Europe when it came to things like telescopes and microscopes. And that, I believe that's one of the things that really gave Europe this huge advantage. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, not just between telescopes and microscopes, but also spotting scopes, like the ability to, I don't even remember what those things are called. They're like the mini telescopes that they would use in um, nautical observation. You know, can you imagine how hard it would be to write a boat or to drive a boat? Do you drive a boat? I don't know what you do with a boat. Pilots? <laughs> pilot uh, helm? A boat. Yeah, right. Captain? To helm a boat going across, you know, and they did it previously, but once they were able to use these scopes to be mm. able to see, you know, what's going on at the horizon or right. spot land so much sooner or spot a storm coming along, it must have been incredibly sure. helpful. Or think about eyeglasses, mm -hmm. right? Imagine... You know, I mean, I've been using glasses, I'm, you know, since I, when I turned about 40, all of a sudden I needed to use eyeglasses to see. Well, you know, once upon a time there, when there were no eyeglasses, if you were a writer or researcher or scientist in the 14, 1500s and your eyesight started to fail, you were just out of luck. Oh, and that happens to literally everybody when they age. Exactly. Yeah, it's a normal function of aging. So imagine how much more research and knowledge was accumulated by, you know, researchers, scientists, writers, authors who were, you know, reaching their sort of peak intellectual years in their 40s and 50s, who could continue because of the discovery of glasses. I never thought about it that way, you know, because I am myopic. I have to wear glasses because I have a hard time seeing things that are far away because that's just the shape of my eye. And there are plenty of people like me who probably wouldn't have survived ancient times because we couldn't see shit that was far away. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I didn't think about the fact that there's so many productive years intellectually in so many people's lives, but around 40 and 50, when you start to become presbyopic and it becomes just harder to see words on a page close up, if you can't read anymore, I mean, I guess the, the, the most successful among them, those who already had assistance and people, they might read for them, you know, but beyond that, like, gosh, what a waste. Exactly. What a waste. Exactly. That's incredible. Wow. Yeah. Glass, uh, pretty important. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> pretty important. And of course, all made from sand. All made from sand. And of course, these things, we think of concrete, we think of glass, and they are so fundamental to modern society, but they're also fundamental to many ancient societies, right? Like these things were especially concrete, like really necessary as we started to develop these tools. But there's a whole class of sand-based products that we wouldn't have the computer revolution without, and that's that silica comes from sand, right? right. And right. so what's that connection? So this is one of my favorite stories. There's a chapter about it in the book. Mm -hmm. um, so in a nutshell, the headline is pretty much every computer chip, every digital device in the world owes its existence to an incredibly pure form of sand, silica sand that is found only in one little area in Appalachian, North Carolina. What? Yeah. Which is so funny because there is such a stereotype in America that you can't get further from technological advancement than, or I should say farther than 
Appalachia. Appalachia. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Like we think of this as hoedown country living. This is like bumpkin living, which is so terrible. But we have this ancient, not ancient, America's not ancient, but we have this like long held stereotype right. about these mountains. Well, I'll tell you, it's not because there's some, you know, amazing high, like secret high tech hub, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> in, in outside of Asheville, North Carolina. It's just that just by geological fluke, they happen to have this amazing raw material. So the story is, in a nutshell, so silicon chips, mm-hmm. to make a silicon chip, um, you need incredibly pure silicon, right? And uh, silicon does not appear by itself anywhere at all in nature. But you can find it all over the place bound up with oxygen in the form of silicon dioxide, which is quartz, mm-hmm. okay? So basically how you make... Uh, the silicon for silicon chips is you start out with just regular old sand, regular old quartz sand, and you run it through a whole series of processes, which I spell out somewhat in the book if anybody's really interested. But basically, you have to do like pro- chemical process after industrial process like this to this to this to this at each step purifying the, that silicon, stripping out more and more of the oxygen and rendering, mm-hmm. getting the silicon more and more and more and more and more pure until it reaches the point where it's 99.119s. <laughs> I'm not even making that up. <laughs> That's the cutoff. That's the cutoff. That's basically perfect. Yeah. yeah. As perfect as you can get. So yeah. until you get to the point where it's like, there's only like one atom of something that is not wow. silicon in mixed in with a billion silicon atoms. Mm. Very difficult to do that, but doable. Anyway, apparently. So that, yeah. yeah. So once you get that silicon, then you have to melt the stuff down so that you can form it into silicon chips. And this is where the, the North Carolina sand comes in. So what, what we've got in, in um, it's a, this little region called spruce pine, North okay. Carolina. And in spruce pine, uh, in the hills outside of this little town called spruce pine is the purest quartz sand that's ever been found anywhere on earth. Okay. And what you need that quartz sand for the main thing that we use it for today is to make what are called quartz crucibles because hmm. what you need so you have your super pure silicon that you want to make your silicon chip out of right you need to melt it down but you can't just throw that stuff in a pot right oh yeah because all this stuff from the pot will end up in the silicon. exactly because <laughs> yeah. you can't have you can't risk it reacting like the tiniest you know, molecular amounts of any contaminants is going to ruin it. So we're talking like clean room, the people in the white suits with the parts per billion air purifiers. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. So once those guys have got this stuff, they need to put it in a, in, in a pot, a crucible to melt it down that A, will not react with that silicon at all. And B is, can uh, be heated up, can withstand the heat mm-hmm. that you need to melt that silicon, which is a lot. And the only thing that does that is pure Quartz, and I mean ultra, ultra pure quartz. So this is where our spruce pine quartz comes in. They take that super wow. pure quartz, run it through a few other series to, of, of processes to make it even more pure, and then turn it into those crucibles. So those crucibles, pretty much every crucible, there are a lot of companies that make those crucibles in China and here in the US and a bunch of other places, but basically all of those crucibles are made with sand from spruce pine, North Carolina. How weird. So it's not so much that the silicon chips are made from that spruce pine uh, quartz. It's that the the container that's used to melt down the stuff that eventually becomes the chips are made. That's so weird. And also like you, I'm sure you never could have predicted that when you first started researching this. No, but as a journalist, I was so happy when I ran across (laughs) that story. It's so Because what a crazy thing, right? Have you seen any of these crucibles? Uh, only pictures. Pictures of yeah. them. Are they, so when I think of a crucible, it's such an ancient word. I think yeah. of like witch's brew or something. But are they like small bowls or is this like industrial scale? They range, but they're basically like, they're not really that much to look at. They just look like a, like a salad bowl. Yeah, because they look like glass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind of milky glass. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. That is so weird. And now like Silicon Valley and basically every modern achievement post 1970 <laughs> like depends on this. Yeah, depends on this little backwater. 
weird. And of course, that is in addition to the, I can only imagine, tons of silica that um, are used to actually make these computer chips every year. You know, we talk, I think I've had conversations with people before about rare earth metals and things Mm -hmm. like that in electronics. And so I think that there's sort of a public understanding that you know, the, the sheer quantity of electronics, because it's become so consumer friendly to own these things that, I mean, most people in a modern kind of industrial society, let's use America as an example, I'm sitting here and within range, I see my laptop, your laptop, my iPhone, your iPhone, my um, pre-amplifier, my eyeglasses there in the other room is my iPad. Um, and, and so it's like, I, I own a lot of devices. Oh, I've got my iPod overcharging. I own a lot of devices that require these, these things mm-hmm. and they have a limited life. You know, my, my iPad or my, um, uh, MacBook pro as expensive as it was probably will not last more than six, seven, eight years. And I'll have to get a whole new one. I'll recycle this. But what does that really mean? It's probably going to mostly end up in a landfill. Hopefully, some of the important components are stripped out. I don't know how reusable they are. I mean, it just, it feels incredibly wasteful. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It is incredibly wasteful. And it's actually, it's becoming a bigger and bigger issue because all of our digital devices are packed with those rare earth elements and Mm -hmm. a bunch of other like super obscure materials that there's only so much of in the world. And a lot of them, there's actually very small amounts of, or they're very hard to get to, or they're yeah. very expensive to get. And, you know, there's, there's lots and lots of problems with all these, uh, these exotic bits and pieces that we need. And that's, that's already starting to become a problem. And it's going to, it's definitely going to become more of one. And it's, we are so kind of, influenced by market forces that we work really hard to make these things as inexpensive as possible when sometimes and I know it's hard right when you when you're talking about social justice and when you're talking about access to information but sometimes like there's a reason things cost a lot of money and if they don't cost a lot of money we don't respect the process as much as to how those things were created right, right. it's like meat Like, it's not okay that a hamburger costs 99 cents at McDonald's, because that means that we are not respecting the lives of these cows, you know, that we're having to farm on an industrial level to produce that meat. And we're seeing a lot of negative downstream effects from that. But at the same time, it's more than okay, because it means we're giving access to high caloric, you know, high protein food to individuals who are struggling. So that balance between social justice and access and democracy, but also, I don't know, respecting these, these, um, these raw components for what they are. If once we make them too cheap, it's dangerous. Yeah, it is. But it's also like, I mean, you know, if you look at it really from an economic, through the lens of economics, Mm -hmm. but really from the big picture, that meat isn't actually that cheap. All those things that you just talked about are actually costs, right? Somebody mm-hmm. is bearing those costs. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's like fossil fuels, right? So gas is $3 a gallon, but that's not actually what it costs us, right? Yeah. We also bear, you know, tremendous health, you know, additional healthcare costs because of the air pollution and God knows what, you know, climate change, you know, those things also have real costs, right? Economists call them externalities, that aren't factored into the price that you, the consumer, pay, but that somebody out there is paying. And we really, in some ways, even might be, we, the consumer, might be paying it, just not when we're purchasing right. the meat. We're paying it in our healthcare premiums, you know? Exactly. And, and it's, but because we don't conglomerate these things at the source, like we're not thinking about the future, we're thinking in the short term, and we're structuring our our sort of global economy around what can I get my hands on right now? And how can I solve a problem today? And we'll deal with the future later. What we end up with is externalities that outweigh the cost of just quick, cheap, easy. I mean, this is fast fashion, right? This is fast food. This is all these things that in a way have been a huge boon for access to individual low income individuals, but at the same time are just destroying the planet. Right. And in the long run, it's, it's going to be a disaster for everybody if we don't get a handle on it. 
Because, of course, the most vulnerable among us are the first to feel those effects, right? Right. You know, impoverished individuals living in coastal cities in Bangladesh have been feeling the effects of climate change for a decade. But here in America, people are like, it was cold this winter. Climate change isn't real. It's like, yeah, that's a luxury that you can have that sort of conflict in your head because you're not you're feeling it with storms and with hotter summers and mosquitoes in California and all the things that are different. But we can protect ourselves because of our concrete and our glass, right? <laughs> you know, and all of our medical devices. And we just don't notice what's happening to people who are vulnerable because of those kinds of actions. It's, it's so interesting that something as what we think of as non-consequential, but ultimately so consequential as sand is really kind of a synecdoche for global climate change and for industrialization and population explosions and and all of these really big problems that governments across the globe have have been um, slow to take responsibility for or to be able to um, to start to strategize about. And gosh, what an important thing to be able to read about this at both of those levels, right? A pure curiosity level, because that's the great thing about science journalism. You're like, holy shit, what's going on in Appalachia? What's the downstream (laughs) effect? It's just fascinating. But at the same time, to be able to take that really big step back and see the forest for the trees, I think is, um, it's not just an honor to be in a privileged position to be able to do that. But I also think it's a, it's a requisite of being like a global citizen, you know? Amen. Yeah. It's just something that we don't talk about enough. We don't think about enough. And, and maybe it's because it's a little depressing. It's super depressing. Yeah. But I'll tell you, I mean, just to go back to sort of where we started, this is, like I said, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not really a science journalist. I'm a journalist who, keeps getting drawn towards scientific topics because that's what's that's what's you know transforming our world that's what's driving so much of you know uh, everything that influences our day-to-day lives and where we're going in the future you just you can't understand the world if you want to understand what's going on in the world, you have to delve into the science behind it and how we're applying that science. You have to have at least minimal scientific literacy to be able to keep up and to be able to have a voice. And I think it's so cool that like, as an investigative journalist who often travels to, you know, developing countries and who maybe talks about really dangerous kind of black market things, like you're still constantly stumbling over Big picture scientific topics. You almost can't avoid them. Exactly. Oh, I love that. So, so Vince, I close my show every week by asking my guests the same two questions. The funny thing is, we've probably answered them 10 times over in this specific chat because it's so aligned with my final two questions. But I don't want to make assumptions because maybe your answers are wildly different than the things we've been talking about this week. They're big picture. So you ready for it? Okay. All right. Thinking big. So on the spot here. Trying to expand my mind. Yes. Here we go. So when you think about the future, mm, already big, I want you to think about a couple of things in whatever context is relevant to you right now in your life, you know, so this could be big picture for the globe or for the cosmos, or it could just be big picture for like you and your family. But when you think about the future, the first question is, what is the thing that's really keeping you up at night? You know, what are you most concerned about when you keep going back to it? What are you like, maybe even a little bit kind of cynical or pessimistic about? But then on the flip side of that, just so that, you know, we're not super depressed when we say <laughs> goodbye. Um, what, are, what are you actually optimistic about? And not just lip service, like genuinely, authentically hopeful for You're assuming I have something that I'm hopeful about. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That's the one answer I've never gotten is nothing. We're all fucked. (laughs) Just like end show now. (laughs) Sorry. Kill yourselves now. Listeners, save time. Um, Jeez. Wow. Uh, There's really kind of no shortage of things to worry about, is there? Right. (laughs) Can I give you two? Yeah, please. All right. So... I would have to say, I mean, just the first thing that springs to my mind is I'm really worried about democracy, Hmm. you know, in this country. Oh, my gosh. 
reasons that I think are obvious and also just around the world, you know, when you really step back and look at the big picture, democracy is a very recent invention, historically speaking, you know, it's quite a, still a very new experiment. Kind of tenuous. And it's very tenuous and there's no guarantee. Like we sort of, you know, in this country, at least you're raised with the idea that like, well, this is just history. History moves, you know, along this course and it eventually brings you to democracy and that's the best and that's the natural and once you've got there you're the, you're, there's no going back and the and the system is in place and it's it's fail it's like foolproof yeah like no matter what the system will write itself and it's just not at all i mean we're really seeing that here in the u.s we're seeing it around the world and when you you know you look at what happened in in europe in the 30s where they set up democracies and then those democracies just fell apart and you look at you look around the world right now, you look at a place like China mm-hmm. that's actually doing great in a lot of ways, right? If you're a, a citizen of the average citizen of China is doing way better than they were 20, 30 years ago. They don't have democracy, but you know, their, their life, their standard of living is way up in a lot of ways. I mean, China is so much further ahead than we are. And yeah, so I, many fronts sometimes joke that like, you know, we make we have these conversations about global China, uh, global climate change. And in China, because there is a single leader, you know, because it is a, a communist party, in essence, they can say, we're just going to make this change and everybody better follow suit. And yeah. like, you just can't do that in a democracy. Like exactly. everybody kind of has to agree, or at least the majority of people do. Right. We've got to have a lot of meetings yeah. and talk about it. And which for the most public part is, comment period. Yes. And which honestly, I, I support <laughs> for the most part. That's a really good thing. But unilateral decisions that need to be made swiftly are not the strong suit of a democracy. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, so if you're an up and coming politician in, you know, Pakistan or Turkey or Burma and you want your country to, you want your countrymen to, you know, your fellow citizens mm-hmm. to have more to eat and nicer places to live, you know, China looks like a pretty good model. Why yeah. should you go into this liberal democracy route that the rich countries have been telling you? Like, the, the model is really getting tarnished, like yeah, it's falling di- apart in the West and it's no longer looking so attractive. It's true. Between, you know, Brexit in the UK, between the Trump administration here in the US, like we're definitely not setting a good global example. And people look to us and they it, it looks like a mockery of yeah. what we were attempting. And also, even within our own country, certain leaders are, you know, doing what I think we always expected people to do. And that's why our democracy, our representative democracy is set up the way it was. But they're doing that fucking power grab, man. They are working really hard to undermine what we have worked oh, for. Yeah. And that's that's yeah. super scary to me as well. Yeah. And it's scary how many people are willing to go along with it. How many people, how many American citizens are seem to be just fine with that? Or it's either they're just fine with it or they just, it's unfathomable to them that it's what's actually happening. And they're just blind to it, which is like almost scarier. I don't know. Okay. You said there were two, though. Yeah, yeah, there's two. If that wasn't bleak enough for you. (laughs) Here we go. uh, It's the meta theme of this whole conversation. It's it's, uh, overconsumption of resources. I don't quite want to say overpopulation Mm -hmm. because, I mean, the planet's got, we've got, you know, 7 billion and change people. We're on our way to have 9 billion. I think we can sustain 9 billion people, but we got to balance it out. Yeah. Not the way we're doing it. Not the way we're doing it. Exactly. Mm. So I'm very worried that we won't figure it out and we're going to have like calamity, like on an apocalyptic scale. Massive. Yeah. Massive global die offs. It's, I mean, it's like the earth will write itself, Yeah, which sounds fucking biblical, but and it could be, it could happen, but here's the turn to the optimistic. Yay. Yes. (laughs) Um, I tell you, I've really bummed out my poor daughter. My daughter is 12 years old. Uh-huh. And she's, she's super smart. She's sort of, you know, like been hearing all the stuff that I've been working on. She's really worried about the earth that I'm, that my generation is handing to her. And I keep telling her, and sometimes I even believe it. Mm-hmm. Human beings, we're really good at creating problems. We're really good at fucking things up. Yeah. But we're also really good at solving problems. We are really good at coming up with solutions to problems. Yep. And, you know, the end of the world has been prophesied a hundred times, you know, from Malthus 
on up. People have been saying, oh, that's it. Oh, you know, 500 million people on the planet. That's it. You know, we're we're all going to die now. (laughs) And yet, you know, we keep coming up with ways to, you know, more efficient agricultural methods and more, you know, better ways to, you know, build cities and on and on and on and healthcare and blah, 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 blah. And somehow, you know, we've managed to keep going this far. And not just keep going, like do it in comfort. Do it in comfort for, yeah. for a lot of us. Like anyway. a lot of us don't even notice the global calamities that are happening left right. and right, you know? So I, in my best moments, mm-hmm. I'm optimistic that we'll get through this this terrible like resource bottleneck that we're headed towards and we'll figure out a way through it and out the other side. I agree. I mean, I know that as human beings, we have the capability. The question is, do we have the political will? And I think sometimes... It takes, you know, many revolutions. It takes really experiencing a threat in a, in a real kind of visceral way to act. Yep. And we are, we've been seeing that with big political changes, you know, with movements, with Black Lives Matter, with Me Too, with Occupy. Like we've actually been seeing people saying enough is enough. This has been so in my face that I can't ignore it anymore. And I think that's how we see real change being affected. Like when you're complacent, you don't affect change. Why would you? Right. You're fine. Yeah. But thing, when things are bad, there's enough motivation to make them better. And, and I agree with you. I mean, I'm ultimately optimistic that human beings are just incredibly, incredibly thoughtful, incredibly skilled at solving problems, but also harmonious, you know, like human beings invented language and poetry and art. And I think that these are some of the highlights of our civilization. And and we shouldn't ignore them just because human beings also invented war. (laughs) Right. Well, Vince, this was such a great chat. I learned so much from you. And like, who would have thunk it? that sand is not just so fundamental, but so fascinating. So one more time, the book is The World in a Grain, the story of sand and how it transformed civilization. You can buy it anywhere books are sold. Vince, how can people read more of your work and find out what you're up to? Easiest way is just go to vincebeiser.com. That's got all my contact info. You can follow me on Twitter, follow me on Facebook, all that good stuff there. I've got stuff uh, coming out in... uh, Popular Science Magazine, MIT Technology Review, cool, and whatever other magazines are still being published. All of these, <laughs> all of these science outlets. I I'm can't here. help it. I just, <laughs> I can't quit the science. I love I it. You? Well, Vince, thank you so much for joining me. It was an absolute blast. Thanks for having me. This of was a lot course. of fun. And everyone listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. 